0: Skeptic Carl Maymer, and this is one of those fabled solo shows. As I have mentioned, I'm my COVID project. Uh, what I'm doing to uh, keep myself busy during those hours I would nor- normally be commuting to and from the office. Uh, I'm working on a uh, basically a Skeptics Book of Lists. I don't know how many of my readers remember the Book of Lists, but as the name sounds, it was a book with lists everything from, you know, ten people who died in the bathtub to the eight deadliest nations to hitchhike in or the the worst verbal flubs by Ronald Reagan. Uh it just it, it was just this huge compendium of, of my my minutia my uh Usually, every item kind of had a, a paragraph that really made you want to learn more. Learn more about um, people like Rasputin or Jack the Ripper or, or you know, what is Stigmata. There have been many, many different uh, book lists, imitations. There's, there was a Canadian book of lists. Ugh. And uh, there's like punk rock book lists and horror book lists. And, uh, and I noticed no one had yet done a skeptical book lists. So anyways, that is my COVID project. Who knows if we'll ever see light. But uh, what I was hoping to do uh, for uh, my American friends, as you'll notice, this podcast has come out just shortly before uh, your Thanksgiving, American Thanksgiving, as we call it up here in Canada, (sighs) Uh, just to give you something to listen to on your uh, holiday Commute, or because COVID, if you're not really going any place, maybe you have to sit in a long, boring Zoom call with your other family members who are also on Zoom. Uh, kind of give you something to maybe listen to in, in the background. I don't know, but anyways. Uh, so this this um this list this list is what I call I believe it's nine. I should read my notes. I think you're gonna get nine items here. It'd be uh, nine foundational crank documents. So these are sort of documents, books, posts to the internet or the uh, even the old world of BBSs that have proved to be well foundational. That that they they took conspiracy thinking, UFO, and usually the merger of the two in whole new new directions. You'll notice a lot of these actually a lot of these uh, really sort of popped up in the eighties with the advent of, uh, uh, bulletin board systems, BBSs. This is sort of the precursor to the internet, uh, precursor to something called Usenet. These things did find their way then onto Usenet and then, uh, FTP sites go for sites and then eventually world, world Wide web but so a lot of these these uh, these foundational documents did actually start their life really ultimately uh, on BBS' someone typed them in someone posted them either to a chat forum or a message forum or uh, there was a thing called a G file so, so you go to a BBS and you could you know read your email and, or you could uh, you know go to the different sort of chat forums or there's usually a thing called called G G files and that was sort of G stood for general and these were just text files of the most random possible nature they could be recipes they could be new monsters for Dungeons and Dragons somebody has uh, cooked up a lot of them were quote anonymous leaks you know in the world of conspiracy thinking or or ufology I mean today we sort of know like you know it's on the internet it must be true uh, you know that's that would be sarcasm, but uh, but back then I mean just the fact that you could I don't know you could you know download illegal copies of of, of games it, 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 it inculcated in your mind that you know you know if illegal games or you know copyrighted software is being uploaded that you can illegally download maybe maybe anonymous documents that pretend to be you know, you know leaks from uh, you know, some ufo base or something like that maybe these could be true as as well so those early days of bbs's and and then the internet kind of almost sort of lent a certain credibility to these documents but anyways um enough keen in for you uh let's let's get right into them the shaver mysteries from 1945 Richard Shaver's The Shaver Mysteries emerged from the pulp sci-fi era of the 1940s and seized the minds of the nascent crankwing just before the flying saucer era emerged in 1947. The Shaver Mysteries are regarded as a foundational text for conspiratorial thinking and the paranoid wing of modern ufology. It's generally agreed, Richard Shaver, who, who died in 1975, was schizophrenic. He was a welder by trade, and he came to believe his welding gun allowed him to read thoughts and receive messages. In 1943, Shaver sent a missive to the offices of Amazing Stories magazine. Uh, this was a leading sci-fi magazine of the day. He implored the editors to publish his discovery of a secret proto-language called Mantong. It was, possibly, the language spoken by Atlanteans, He he asserted. Shaver explained each letter has a secret meaning, and if you apply those secret meanings to each letter in a word, you reveal the true meaning of a word. Amazing Stories editor-in-chief, Ray Palmer, he, he died in 1977, picked up Shaver's letter from the slush pile and was intrigued. He ran Shaver's Mantong Dictionary as a letter to the editor. In the Ed Comments, below the letter, Palmer suggested that maybe the writer had truly discovered a lost language and implored the magazine's readers to test it out. This would set a pattern for Palmer's approach to the Shaver mysteries. Shaver said the stories were true. Maybe they are. Maybe not. You decide. It was a precursor to Fargo's This is a True Story introductory text. Many readers wrote in, claiming they proved out the Mantong Dictionary, they were getting amazing results, and Shaver sure seemed to be onto something. Palmer wrote Shaver back and asked for more. Shaver replied with a 10,000-word story about being prisoner in a vast underground world populated by evil sadistic Daros this is short for detrimental robots, reptilians, and a noble race of Nordic-like teros. The Darrows were not actually robots, but small humanoids that did horrible, evil things, mainly to scantily-clad women, in a robot-like fashion. Shaver revealed the Darrows were abducting thousands of humans every year to process into meat. Palmer was hooked by Shaver's tale. He pumped up Palmer's original manuscript, titled A Warning to Mankind, and published a 30,000-word version in the March 1945 issue titled I Remember Lemuria. The March issue was a huge hit and sold out. Palmer ordered more stories from Shaver. Between 1945 and 1948, three out of four issues ran a story from Shaver. These stories became known as, collectively, the Shaver Mysteries. Local clubs formed to discuss the stories. Readers wrote in, claiming they too had been held prisoner by the Daros or had found secret elevators to this underground world. There was no end to readers writing in, anxious to confirm aspects of Shaver's universe. Now, Not all readers of Amazing Stories were fans of the Shaver Mysteries, or, at least, Palmer's you-decide-of-their-true approach. Complaints from hard sci-fi fans to the magazine's publisher, Ziff Davis, resulted in Palmer's departure. Palmer didn't stay quiet, however. He founded Fate Magazine, which itself helped merge ufology with the broader world of the paranormal. Shaver's inward-looking stories fell out of favor in the 1950s as the fantasy-prone started to look outward to space and aliens to explain life's mysteries. However, modern ufology and the wider world of esotericism have incorporated Shaver's ideas of ancient races, lost continents, underground bases, and abductions into their own mythology. In later years, with a greater understanding of mental illness, critics have questioned Palmer's ethics. At a minimum palmer was encouraging a deeply disturbed man to plumb ever deeper into delusions that clearly terrified him at its worst palmer was taking advantage of shaver for monetary reasons he was using shaver's mad rabblings as a kind of idea pump and was the one writing the shaver mysteries in full the anarchist cookbook from 1971 william powell who died in 2016 was a teenager working as a manager in a bookstore in Greenwich Village in the late 1960s. He met a lot of Vietnam vets in a shop and became horrified at what happened to them. He grew concerned he himself might get sent to die in Vietnam. For some reason, he decided the state needed to be burned to the ground through a violent grassroots revolution. Ah, teenagers. Revolutionists needed bombs, guns, booby traps, communication gear, and, I guess, LSD. So he quit his job and spent two years researching the book's materials. Powell sold the book to Lyle Stewart, who, who died in 2006. Stewart was described as a First Amendment warrior and had a history of publishing books no other publisher would touch. This ranged from the CD, like the autobiography of Linda Lovelace, to the straight-up anti-Semitic, that is, the Turner Diaries. One should note at this point, Stewart was of Jewish heritage. So when Powell came to him with the Anarchist Cookbook, you know, it was something for the sedition slat. Stewart gave Powell $35,000 for the copyright, which that would be in 1971 dollars, which would be, well, more than $35,000 in today dollars. It's a nice chunk of change for a freaking teenager. Since publication, the Anarchist Cookbook has sold two million copies. What's interesting is the book itself became something akin to a household god for hippies, punk rockers, and suburban kids who dreamed of being total edgelords. Despite seeming to offer step-by-step guides on how to burn, blow up, or shoot people, not many people really ever seem to follow any of the book's recipes in the commission of any actual crimes. Since its publication five decades ago, there are, at best, two crimes that can be tied to the book. The reality is most of the instructions in the book are just not easy to follow. You need real lab equipment. If you can lay your hands on real lab equipment and you know how to hook it up, you probably don't need a book written by an angry teenager to make something dangerous. You are fully capable of doing what Powell did. Go to the library and look up the source material Powell used. People in the know have found Powell's ability to transcribe material he found in books like U.S. Army Field Manual, 5-25, was, well, wanting. He managed to leave out steps and, you know, key ingredients. As BBSs and Snake came on the scene, people attempted to type in various pages from Powell's book or simply created their own version and posted them under the same title. It kicked off a whole genre of online mayhem manuals. There were rumors, now these were probably put out by well-meaning people just trying to keep kids from burning their faces off, that the CIA had purposely posted these instructionally flawed mayhem manuals to the internet to maim or kill potential terrorists or anarchists. But those claims have generally proven to be without any substance. Powell later became a devout Anglican and tried to get his book pulled from sale. Unfortunately, he sold his copyright and had no legal means. But hey, Who isn't embarrassed by your angry teenage political rants? Of course, not many of our angry BBS rants from the 80s are available on Amazon, earning someone else money. It does seem Powell tried to make up for his own perceived hand in whoever might have been on the wrong end of one of his booby traps or improvised weapons. He devoted himself later in life to helping educate children with emotional problems and and ADHD. The Gemstone File from 1975 The gemstone file is a shorter name for a document called the key to the gemstone file. The key to the gemstone file, heretofore the gemstone file, has been circulating in one format or another since 1975. The gemstone file was initially passed around as an nth generation photocopy. Hustler Magazine also published a version. In the 80s and early 90s, it became a mainstay on BBS G-File sections, and then got propagated in all possible forms via the internet. The Gemstone File outlines a vast conspiracy behind the murder of JFK. But it doesn't stop there. Like most grand conspiracies, the conspirator's endgame was to control the world. The Gemstone File as we know it today was produced by Stephanie Kuwana, a writer for Playgirl magazine in the 1970s. It's based on 300-plus pages supplied to her by conspiracy enthusiast May Brussel. She died in uh, 1988. The pages themselves were photocopies of handwritten notes by the originator of the conspiracy theory, Bruce Porter Roberts, who died in 1976. Roberts himself is reported to have written over a thousand pages about his discovery of a secret society called Memortis, which, no joke, stood for moldering mass of rotten, dribbling, infectious shit. (sighs) Roberts was a fan of Brussels' JFK conspiracy-themed radio show, World Watchers International, which aired on KLRB in Stewart, Oklahoma. He gave her several hundred handwritten pages of his memorandum exposé. The name of this work takes its name primarily from Brussels writing the word gemstone on the file folder she used to hold Roberts' notes. The gemstone appellation also comes from a small side plot within the file that is centered on Roberts himself. Roberts claimed he invented a process for creating synthetic rubies, which Hughes' aircraft stole from him to make precision lasers. Was Roberts even capable of making synthetic rubies? Not a lot is known of the man. His obit in a San Francisco paper indicates he served during World War II and pursued a degree in physics but dropped out of university before completing his degree. Some that did meet him or read his original writings came away feeling Roberts was schizophrenic. His unedited papers were disjointed and full of expletives. He wrote nonsense letters to Ralph Nader. It became clear to researchers who gained access to Roberts' original writings that Kuana did a great deal of editing to turn hundreds of pages of word salad into human-readable form. Roberts' supposed ability to produce high-quality fake rubies does, however, fill in a glaring plot hole. How does a guy who basically never finished university and lived at home with his parents until he died have access to such secret information? Apparently, he paid off informants with sacks of high quality synthetic rubies. Simple. The Gemstone File is basically a timeline of events starting with the rise of Aristotle Anasis in 1932 and ends with Ford pardoning Nixon in 1974. In between those two points, we learn how Onassis made deals with Joseph Kennedy, Big Oil, the Rockefellers, and the Mafia over the decades to influence politics and enrich himself. The basis for Kennedy's assassination is, in essence, JFK cheated Onassis on a deal originally set up by his father to go easy on the Mafia, which, being Greek, Onassis controlled. Onassis had the Mafia kill JFK. The file fingers the famous Mafia boss Jimmy the Weasel as the trigger man who fired the kill shot in Dallas. The idea that the Mafia killed JFK wasn't an original theory, but the gemstone file offers probably the best summation of the theory. Roberts writes of the supposed Mafia hit, and in essence ending up with Jackie Kennedy, quote, an old Mafia rule, if someone welches on a deal, kill him and take his gun and his girl, in this case Jackie and the Pentagon. There's also another bizarre plot where Anastas supposedly kidnapped Howard Hughes, kept him prisoner on his island of Scorpios, and then took control of Hughes' numerous businesses. Hughes is claimed to have died there and replaced by a lookalike. Oh, The Catholic Church also figures into things, too. Turns out the Church has known all along Jesus wasn't Jewish, but a, quote, Arab. The Romans entered into an early conspiracy with the Church to turn Jesus into a Jew. And away we go. The Turner Diaries from 1978. The Turner Diaries, although a work of fiction, became the operating Bible of many right wing neo Nazi groups and racist citizen militias through the 1990s. Its influence persists even today. It was first published in 1978 by William Luther Pierce, who died in 2002. In the 60s, Pierce was a tenured professor, but left his position for a job in private industry because he thought the on-campus counterculture movement was being controlled by Jews. He joined the John Birch Society, but quickly resigned his membership because they didn't hate visible minorities and Jews enough for his tastes. He then joined the American Nazi Party, but left after realizing Nazis in the 1970s had a bad image among pedestrian racists. He founded his own hate group called the National Alliance. Between 1975 and 1978, Pierce started publishing the Turner Diaries in serialized form for his National Alliance's newsletter, ATTACK! That's ATTACK with an exclamation mark, so you know they're serious. Upon completion, Pierce collected the chapters into a book and self-published it in 1978. Events in the serialized version were set in the 1980s, but the book edition changed the setting to the 1990s. The book, in essence, details how, quote, whites are suffering from a white genocide imposed by the federal government and the Jews. It shows how, quote, patriots can rise up and strike back at the feds with trucks laden with fertilizer bombs. The book offers tips on how hate groups can fund their citizen militias through crime. It also suggests hate groups should infiltrate the military and convince white soldiers to start shooting any black person in a uniform. This way, when African Americans start to defend themselves, it can be spun as an uprising of violent black people. Pierce's solution to stopping white genocide was to kill all visible minorities, race traitors, women in interracial marriages, and, of course, the Jews. Basically, his book was a template how racists can foment and fund a race war and commit genocide. The work is graphic and unforgiving, and sold half a million copies. Oh yeah, it also has a love story. Because violent racists need love too. Some suggest the book was prophetic and described many events that did transpire in the 1990s. Most critics point out neo-Nazi groups like the Order, which took its name directly from the Turner Diaries. And individuals like Timothy McVeigh and John William King, who murdered African-American James Byrd by dragging him to death behind his pickup, were fans of the book and were acting out various scenarios depicted within the book's pages. At least 12 hate crimes and acts of terrorism can be tied directly back to the Turner Diaries since the 1990s. Grudgeport 13 from 1981 Project Grudge was an early Air Force investigation into UFOs. The project started and ended in 1949. It was succeeded by Project Blue Book. In 1968, the U.S. Air Force released a compendium of 12 declassified reports from both Project Grudge and Project Blue Book. These reports were originally published between 1951 and 1953. They're all universally dull, dry reads. In 1955, Project Blue Book released its final report, Special Report Number 14. It did not classify this one, but released it soon after publication to the American public. It was a huge 315-page document offering an incredible thorough statistical analysis of some 3,200 sightings. When the Air Force later declassified its twelve previous reports, UFO people noticed there were 12 status reports numbered 1-12, to and then one special report numbered 14. What happened to report 13? The Air Force noticed this too. In its 1968 release of the 12 previously classified reports, it noted it could find no 13th report. Instead of accepting the Air Force occasionally is capable of incorrectly numbering things, UFOlogists were certain Report 13 was out there, and it was far too shocking for the American public. Enter William Bill English. English claimed to have been a Green Beret captain in Vietnam and a former POW who had managed a daring escape. Having proved his mettle, he was sent on a secret mission to investigate a B-52 that was attacked by UFO over Laos. Ignore for a moment we know the service record of every B-52 that rolled off the production line and none was ever lost over Laos. Also ignore for the moment the U.S. Air Force didn't rely on the U.S. Army for search and rescue efforts. They had their own well-trained teams. After his service in Vietnam, English claimed to work for an intelligence group based in the UK. In the late 70s, while in the UK, he was given the fabled 13th Grudge Report to analyze. He reported to his superiors that the report was genuine, as, among its 600-plus pages, it contained photos from his mission in the 1960s to locate the downed B-52. His wild account aggrudged Report 13 first surfaced in 1981 in the form of a mysterious memorandum to several UFO groups and zine publications. He distributed them under the pseudonym Captain Toolinet. He seems to have given a few interviews to UFO investigators and the UF zine Stigmata, uh, and that would be published in issue 14 if you get your hands on a bound edition. At least one UFO investigator came away with the impression English was, quote, unstable and, quote, again, nuttier than a fruitcake. In the late 80s, English dropped his pseudonym and started going by his real name. He also got the ear of John Lear, who was the son of the guy who invented the Learjet. John Lear himself was something of an 80s UFO impresario. Lear gave wider distribution to English's recounting of what he supposedly saw in Grudge Report 13. No one will be surprised to read it contained a fantastical account of crash saucer retrievals, the capture of live aliens, alien autopsies, and evidence aliens performing ghastly experiments on humans. English seemed really hung up on human mutilation and covered supposed incidents in excruciating detail. Someone typed in Lear's report on English's claims about Grudge Report 13 and uploaded it to a local BBS. From there, it got passed around and became a staple of any well-stocked BBS G-File section. English's account of Grudge Report 13 is now part of the standard ET mythology, helped in part by BBS's and then Usenet. Milton William Cooper amplified English's claim by lifting large parts for his own work, Behold a Pale Horse. English should have probably stuck to his Captain tuninet's pseudonym. As his fame grew, people started looking into his rather illustrious military career. Not surprisingly, people found English's claimed military background suspect. One can find him listed on a couple Stolen Valor websites. These are websites that expose, quote, phonies who publicly trade on made-up military service. One Stolen Valor site published what appears to be his official service record. It makes no mention he was a Green Beret. If accurate, it reveals English served in the Army between 1971 and 1974. Private First Class was the highest rank he attained. The closest he got to Southeast Asia was a two-year deployment in Germany. Before anyone got a hold of his service record, there were other red flags about his story. He had trouble citing his unit in a fashion familiar to any military veteran. He couldn't cite the tail number of the B-52 he supposedly risked his life to find in Laos. In 2012, English threw his hat in for a run for the Senate. His biography for his candidacy dropped any mention of him being a Greenbrae, an officer, or even a military vet. Typically, these are things that are seen as a plus for any candidate. Odd that, English did confess on his own campaign page he was a convicted felon, he claimed he was once convicted of aggravated assault. In his defense, he says he had only pulled a gun trying to stop, quote, a sexual predator who was raping his 14 year old daughter. The Dulce Papers from 1987. The Dulce Papers is a mythical set of documents supposedly leaked by a government insider in the UFO community in the 1980s. A handful of unnamed ufologists were entrusted with copies for safekeeping. Those who saw them claim they described an underground base near Dulce, New Mexico, that is jointly operated by the U.S. military and an alien nation. It's important to understand that no one has ever produced the actual Dulce papers. We're told copies were all mysteriously recalled. Unlike Area 51, which is a real military base that looms large in UFO mythology, there is no actual base near Dulce. It's the product of cranks riffing on the words of a mentally disturbed man named Paul Benowitz, who died in 2003. Benowitz was a military contractor and a pilot. He liked to fly his light plane around U.S. military bases. He was convinced he was protecting the U.S. from an invasion of space aliens. He would photograph UFOs, or what he thought were UFOs, and then dutifully hand his findings over to the Air Force. It is generally believed he managed to capture a photo of the still-classified F-117A stealth fighter. The Air Force grew worried Benowitz might make this photo public and the Soviets would discern the fighter's existence. The Air Force started to blow a lot of disinformation chaff around Benowitz. It provided Benowitz with all kinds of crazy information, notably stories about a magical underground realm located outside of Dulce, New Mexico. The Soviets likely knew there was no base near Dulce. And anyone talking about aliens in an underground facility under a patch of land that clearly had never been excavated would sound crazy to the Soviets and just not worth their time. But, as it turns out, no story is too crazy for the UFO community. Benowitz passed on the information he was being fed to his peers. Word of the mysterious base spread. In 1987, John Lear seems to be the first person to put pen to paper about what he heard about the Dulce base. He wrote it up in a snail mail letter. Someone retyped the letter and distributed it electronically via BBS. In that letter, Lear revealed the underground base was home to labs where aliens were conducting horrible experiments on human abductees. In 1979, when the military became aware of this, they tried to send in a crack Delta Force team to rescue the human captives. They were unsuccessful and were decimated by alien defenders. In this letter, Lear speaks of including a copy of the fabled Dulce papers. When Lear writes he's including the Dulce papers, he's actually referring to hand-drawn reproductions of photos included with the supposed leaked documents. Here is where it gets immediately stupid. We're to believe the actual Dulce papers were all recalled, but someone had the foresight to make hand-drawn reproductions instead of taking everything down to Kinko's and churning off actual reproductions. All right. A year later, in 1989, Lear's associate John Grace, who went by the online name Val Valerian, published these images in a 300-page tome called The Matrix, Understanding Aspects of Covert Interaction with Alien Culture, Technology, and Planetary Power Structures. People just generally refer to it as The Matrix, or The Matrix One, as Grace followed it up with seven more Matrix books. Each Matrix volume grew in size. Matrix 2 was 700 pages long. Matrix 3 hit 900 pages. Matrix 4 topped at over 1,000 pages. These books are mostly assemblages of long, disjointed narratives of imagined UFO technology, government conspiracies, sacred geometry, spiritualism, marriage vice, I'm not kidding, and even one of those infernal magic eye stereograms that were popular in the 1990s. Part of it reads, frankly, like a sourcebook for an 80s-era sci-fi RPG, right down to the amateur line art. Matrix 1 is probably best known for the so-called Dulce papers. This amounts to a single-paragraph summary of the horrors going on under the deserts of Dulce. Animal-human hybrids grown in tanks, blood-drinking aliens, and, and women being impregnated with space babies. It also included the drawings Lear passed on. They're somewhat ghoulish, featuring images of aliens being grown in pods, and a drawing of a tank with pieces of pale meat floating in it. I suppose we're left to imagine the meat is human. A year later, someone going by the name Jason Bishop III got a hold of the crank talking stick and banged out his own report on Dulce for the Peronet BBS. Bishop's report layers on top the hand of the Illuminati and the Rand Corporation. He also ups the horror show factor, claiming there's a level dubbed informally the Nightmare Hall. Bishop quotes an unnamed source as saying, I've seen multi-legged humans that look like half-human, half-octopus, also reptilian humans and furry creatures that have hands like humans, and cries like a baby. It mimics human words. I frequently encountered humans in cages, usually dazed or drugs, but sometimes they cried and begged for help. After Bishop's drop, there was no end to people claiming they had worked at the base or had seen secret military materials confirming the previous allegations of course each extended the myth adding additional levels different alien types and secret underground rail systems between places like area 51 and the denver airport the Krill files from 1988 okay this one was a real shit show In November of 1988, John Grace, aka Val Valerian, uploaded to the Paranet BBS a 14-page document titled, A Situation Report on Our Acquisition of Advanced Technology and Interaction with Alien Cultures. It claimed to be authored by someone named O. H. Krill. Due to technology limits, many early BBSs of the day had to break the documents up into four parts. It became known colloquially as the Krill Files, although technically it was meant to be just one single file. The Krill document was authored by Grace and John Lear. It reads like an attempt by Grace and Lear to pull together and make sense of many of the wild claims being distributed via UFO zines and on BBS systems of the day. In essence, it was an early attempt at creating a theory that unifies the fields of UFOlogy and the emerging anti-government conspiracy nuttery. The Krill files assert as fact a number of completely unsubstantiated claims. The U.S. government was in possession of alien craft and even live ETs. Aliens have been mucking around with their evolution as a species. Humans are being subliminally reprogrammed to be Manchurian candidates. Aliens have bases on Earth and have been mutilating both cattle and humans. The U.S. government has generally looked the other way in return for advanced technology. What UFOlogy takes today as core dogma was new and disturbing to many. Why Grayson Lear chose to publish under a pseudonym is unclear. The curl Files regurgitated material Lear had published under his own name. It also roped in material from the 1984 Majestic 12 hoax and borrowed from Bill English's earlier super bogus Grudge Report 13. Perhaps Lear didn't want to be accused of plagiarizing himself and others. There's also this weird phenomenon in UFOlogy where, as people introduce their own wild claims, they tend to build on earlier claims. By citing and including these earlier sources, they offer UFOlogists the illusion of independent verification. more they get mentioned in other people's work, the more they become concrete pillars of the UFO mythos. It's possible Lear was hoping people would read the Krill files as confirmation of Lear's own claims which were at the time controversial to the nuts and boltsers in the BBS scene of the day. In terms of repetition is true, the master was Milton William Cooper. Cooper had a way of taking other people's made-up stories and claiming they were totally authentic because he had actually seen them first back in the 1970s during his service in the Navy. Not satisfied with letting someone else bask in the glory of having pierced the veil, Cooper would then pile on pages and pages of his own made-up shit. When Cooper read the Krill files, he predictably claimed they were 100% authentic, as he had seen them while working in military intelligence. He tried to extend the mythology by claiming Krill was the name of a space alien held by the U.S. government and the OH stood for Original Hostage. Cooper claimed Krill was given to the U.S. government as live collateral for the right to borrow hicks and hayseeds. Lear was no fan of Cooper. When Lear heard Cooper lying about, well, his lie, Lear went public. Lear publicly admitted he and Grace authored the Krill files, and made up the name Krill as an inside joke. It's a reference to a 1974 UFO documentary called UFOs It Has Begun. This was actually hosted by Rod Serling. That movie refers to a space alien named Krill. The O and H initials were just made up out of thin air. Many in UFOlogy were upset at being hoodwinked by both Lear and Cooper. Lear and Cooper were not super popular, as I said, with the nuts-and-bolts ufologists who haunted Perinet back then. Here was evidence to most that Lear and Cooper were bullshitting all along. Many took Lear's admission that he made up the Krill name to mean he made up the Krill files in total. Lear and Cooper found themselves driven out of respectable ufology for trying to pull a fast one on their totally legit community. Cooper, pinned to the wall, eventually jumped into the anti-government patriot movement full hog. He later claimed that all that UFO stuff he spouted with such conviction and certitude was actually disinformation. seems his Navy handlers back in the 1970s wanted to turn him into an unwitting disinformation agent. Cooper tried to then take down the rest of UFOlogy by claiming the likes of Lear and Grace were not just dupes like him, but actual CIA disinformation agents. Today, that muckraking has largely been forgotten. Despite Lear's confession, Krill was a made-up pseudonym and never pretended to be the name of a space alien in the original file. Many modern UFOlogists today claim O.H. Krill was indeed an alien held by the U.S. government. Behold a Pale Horse from 1991 Behold a Pale Horse is a book written by Milton William Bill Cooper. Cooper emerged in the UFO field in the late 1980s. He claimed he worked in naval intelligence in the early 1970s and had access to secret government documents about the alien presence. He proved to be a polarizing figure, and was eventually drummed out of the UFO field. Before his death in 2001, he found his constituency among members of the anti-government Patriot movement. Post-death, Behold the Pale Horse is enjoying a renaissance among QAnon types. Because why not? Behold, a pale horse is many things, and consequently, there's a chapter in the book for any crank of any bent. If you believe in UFOs and think the government is covering it up, there's a chapter for you. If you think Kennedy was not killed by Oswald, there's a chapter for you. What this book is not, however, is well organized. There's no central thesis. Chapters don't build and mesh together to support a final conclusion. You could randomly reorder the book's chapters, or delete several, and it wouldn't affect anything Cooper was trying to say. It's pre-internet Pinterest for conspiracy cranks. One chapter is Cooper expanding on articles he posted on various BBSs in the 1980s. The next is a copy of a proposed federal law he doesn't like and was never, in fact, passed. Although you're not actually told that. The next chapter is a transcript of a phone conversation he had with some random person. Cooper pads his book out with his autobiography, fake documents supplied to him by other people, and random factoids that don't seem to be true, like did you know the founder of the Bilderberg Group had the power to veto the Vatican's choice for Pope? There are, however, a few chapters in the book that have generally proved influential, with people given to adorning their MAGA hat with tinfoil and MUFON buttons. In Cooper's universe, the world is controlled by the Illuminati, through an octopus network of groups like the fictitious MJ-12 Group, George Bush's Zapata Oil Company, politicians ostensibly behind the war on drugs, the Trilateral Commission, the Jesuits, and the Knights of Columbus. Yeah, the Knights of Columbus. You know, those guys in weird sailor hats that have fish fries and collect pop bottles? Although some of the groups seem to work at cross purposes, that is all disinformation. In Cooper's mind, really the mind of a Cold War era Navy vet, the Illuminati is using all these groups to spread communism across the globe. He seems to have had a knack for collecting and then republishing in his book several known hoax documents that, of course, Cooper believes are 100% true. The protocols of the Elders of Zion can be found tossed in the middle of the book. So as not to be accused of being an anti-Semite, Cooper claims the protocols were a bit of a deception. Yes, the plan is true, but... Quote, Jews, is really code for, quote, Illuminati. Many critics believe that was simply Cooper's attempt at dodging accusations of anti-Semitism. The inclusion of the protocols was Cooper's way to sell the book to more right-wing racists. Offer two books in one. Lesser-known hoax documents Cooper sees fit to include are the Secret Treaty of Verona, a copy of a supposed oath members of the Knights of Columbus take, promising to wage total war against Protestants, and a fake leaked document revealing the Club of Rome's goal to reorganize the world into various kingdoms. The appendices are probably the most fun to read, although it's not really clear why he called them appendices, when they're just as random in nature as the material he labeled chapters. But he thoughtfully included seven of them. Probably the best is Appendix B, which includes, in essence, a fan letter from someone named Millard. It's part fanboy mail and part Millard's attempt to pour his heart out to Cooper about a woman who recently walked out of his life. Millard reasons this woman, who seemed just so perfect for him, was actually a government agent. According to Millard, they wanted this, well, this basic nobody to know, quote, they could get me at the deepest, most personal, and painful level. Behold, the Pale Horse is, really, a painful read all right that's it i believe that is nine uh, influential crank documents uh that have really sort of formed the basis in recent years for conspiracy thinking and ufo thinking um i hope you all have a excellent and very very safe american thanksgiving uh Carl, up here in Canada, your Conspiracy Skeptic, signing out. It's astounding. Time is fleeting. Madness takes its toll. But listen closely. Not for very much longer. I've got to Keep control. Just a jump to the left. And then a step to the right. With your hands on your hips. <laughs> you bring your knees.